This is Hebrews 2020, where we're attempting to see Jesus with 2020 vision by dropping a lens each time we meet and hopefully allowing the Holy Spirit to present and portray a clearer vision of our Lord Jesus Christ to our hearts. Today I have the sort of sad but of course also happy announcement to make that my dear father-in-law, Phil Henry Sr., has passed into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. This message is slightly ahead of its time, so that occurred on August 18th. And it is not too strange to consider God's plan, providence, and provision because on the 18th, or the message that we proclaimed and recorded for August 18th, the very day of his glorious passage into the presence of his Savior and our Savior, Jesus Christ, I happened to contain this little paragraph in our message. When we as human beings speak of the dead, we are talking from a human perspective. To us, those who have passed away or who have died or who have fallen asleep, to use a biblical euphemism, are dead. And to us and from our human creaturely perspective, they are, in a sense, dead. For we have witnessed their death. We've experienced their death even though they haven't experienced their death. But to God they're living because, as Jesus said, to the living God all are living. Luke 20, 38. We think too often in a way that may be described as from here to there. We should change our perspective when it comes to death. We should not think of someone passing from here, life, to there, death, but from the perspective of life coming from there, the living God, to here, to take someone out of the realm of dying and death and into the realm of life and resurrection. My father-in-law, whom I am proud and honored to call dad and have for the 29 years I've been married to his daughter Pam, and oh how she loved him. It's my privilege to consider him today as we begin our message on hope. And again, I have been deeply honored and privileged to call him dad. Pam recently told me that all she ever received from him was pure love. And that's so true. I witnessed it many, many times. He received me so graciously into the family and never spoke a harsh or angry word to me. And he accepted my children and grandchildren as part of the family. And he said many times that he was going to die with a smile on his face because of the great blessing of his family. And so... I would say today, rejoice in peace, Dad, and we'll see you very soon. In fact, 
his oldest son, his firstborn, firstborn son of Phil and Carol, his loving wife, is our friend and brother in grace, Phil Henry. And he wrote a very touching and heartfelt memorial to his dad and placed it on Facebook. I was going to refer you to it, but thanks to Kathy McClory, we have it right here in writing on the pulpit as I'm preaching today. And I'm preaching on August, 6, August 19th for a message that will be for Sunday, August 29th. I'm quoting now Phil Henry's post from today. Big Phil met Jesus yesterday. Mom, his loving wife of 63 years and totally attentive nurse, as well as her primary assistant, our sister Diana, started to stir Dad to wake him for a doctor's appointment. He was in his bedroom chair, the reclining one, which he spent the majority of the last few months of his life. Lately, he had been slow to respond at times, but this time he did not respond at all. I take that back, Phil says. When the Lord called his name, the same Lord who 2,000 years ago entered into a tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. Well, yesterday Jesus said, Philip, come forth. And the beloved husband of Carol, the hero father to Pam and Danny, Diana and me, the awesome grandfather to the apple of his eye grandchildren, and the loving relative to many and friend to many more. Well, he obeyed Jesus, left his body in the chair, and his soul and spirit, his true self, arose from that chair without needing to press the lift button. <laughs> Dad met Jesus face to face for the first time, the one whom he had heard so much about, growing up in a loving and preaching Roman Catholic family, the one who was the head of their marriage of 63 years, the one whom he made sure us kids knew about. And boy, was Dad proud when his son-in-law, Pastor Rick Knapp, ordained me five years ago, and I, la I launched the Phil Henry Power Gospel Ministry. In fact, when his grandson helped him to finally operate a smartphone and he no longer had to bellow from another room, Lanny, for technical assistance. Dad would watch my videos multiple times and even make his friends view the latest one before a card game would ensue. Phil goes on to write, Dad leaves behind his primary legacy, his family, as well as one of his true loves, Pine Township. Upon his retirement from a successful business career, Dad proudly served his community for 20 years as one of the township supervisors, and he was affectionately known as the Godfather of Pine. He was deeply invested as the chairman of the police board and especially loved cheering for the Pine Richland football team. Anyways, thanks for letting me share about, check that, brag about my father. If you know me, this is not the first time you've heard me launch on that subject. R.I.P. Dad which for the Henrys means he is rejoicing in peace and experiencing right now in full measure what 1 Corinthians 2.9 speaks of. But as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared 
for those who love him. And I can certainly echo Phil's warm and heartfelt sentiments and say too, Dad, rest and rejoice in peace as we know he's experiencing the fullness of joy at God's right hand. And I don't have to ask our congregation to pray for the comfort and consolation that can only come from the Father of mercies because I know you do that anyways and don't need my encouragement to do so. But I wanted to begin today's message with speaking not only in honor of Mr. Henry, but also in honor of his glorious Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom every message and every increment of our Hebrews series is dedicated. And Father, we dedicate ourselves today to you. We commit our souls to you, entrust our spirits to you, and present our bodies to you that your Son, Jesus Christ, will be magnified in us, in our lives, and in our biographies, and in the narratives of our history on this planet. For we know it's your will to manifest the life of Jesus in our mortal bodies, and we know that it is your heartfelt desire, Father, to grant us not only the great salvation that is in Christ Jesus, but also reward beyond that salvation. Thank you for the assurance that my father-in-law, the one whom I was proud to call dad, Pam's beloved dad, is now already in that city that we've approached and with and among the spirits of justified people made perfect. Thank you for that assurance and thank you for this wonderful opportunity to continue to proclaim a message to a very receptive congregation in the most part. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Especially in the time of a painful but temporary loss of a loved one, we're compelled to dwell on hope. We are compelled to hope. As we've, seen, have we, as we've seen in our anatomy of hope, the scriptures themselves are an anatomy of hope. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the historical basis for the hope that is anatomized in the scripture. Jesus' own resurrection body is itself an anatomy of hope. After he had risen from the dead, and evidently after he had entered by his own blood into the Holy of Holies in heaven, having secured eternal redemption, as Hebrews 9.12 puts it, he appeared to his disciples. To Thomas, who had expressed disbelief and who had doubted that he was raised and who required physical and empirical evidence, Jesus said, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Evidently, when Jesus had previously told Mary Magdalene not 
to touch him. It was because he had not yet ascended to present himself in the Holy of Holies and therefore to complete his priestly offering. But we're going to qualify that in a moment about just what that meant when Jesus told Mary, don't touch me. And while he told Thomas to touch him, touch him, handle him, and told his disciples, in fact, also, handle me and see that I am flesh and bones. That same night, after Jesus had told Mary that early in the morning, Jesus came among his disciples and showed them his hands and his side in John 20, 20. According to Luke 24, 39, on that same day, Jesus appeared among his disciples and said, Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Apparently between the time and the early morning of the day of his resurrection, when Mary Magdalene saw Jesus, and later that day when he said to his disciples, Touch me and see, Jesus had ascended in the interim to the Father and presented himself behind the second curtain in heaven to accomplish his work as archpriest in making atonement for sin. Every priest has to have something to offer. Certainly Jesus did. Now it's been suggested that Jesus didn't let Mary touch him because she was somehow ceremonially unclean, whether through menstruation or through contact with the tomb or the cemetery, and therefore contact with the dead or some such thing. It has also been suggested that only eight days later did Jesus allow physical contact with his disciples because he had to fulfill the Levitical requirement of seven days for the ordination of priests in Exodus 29.35 and that Jesus needed to remain ceremonially undefiled for that time period before ascending to the Father to be ordained as a priest and to offer his atoning sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle. I disagree with that suggestion for four reasons. So I guess we're entering into some dialectic theology. First, Jesus allowed, in fact, urged his disciples to touch him later on that same day. Second, the comparison of Jesus' priesthood to that of Aaron contained as much contrast and dissimilarity as comparison and similarity. He didn't have to fulfill any Levitical orders or Levitical regulations. He was not a priest after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was a priest forever like Melchizedek and declared to be such by the Father. He was not a priest until the end of his earthly life like Aaron. It is apparent, however, that between early morning when Mary encountered the risen Jesus and later that day when he appeared to his disciples and allowed them, in fact, 
urged them to touch him, that he had ascended to the Father and had presented his offering in the heavenly tent, thus completing his duty as a priest. Third reason why I disagree with that suggestion made earlier, there is no indication that Jesus had to be ordained priest after his resurrection. Indeed, in his death, he was acting already as the eternal priest by offering himself for the expiation of sins forever and for all of humanity. Jesus didn't forbid Mary to touch him because she was a woman or because she was menstruating or because she had recent contact with a cemetery or a tomb or because, as silly literature has recently suggested, she had a romantic inclination toward him, but simply because Jesus had not yet accomplished his priestly task by ascending to the Father. Don't touch me, Mary. And we're going to see that that's not exactly what he said, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Fourth reason, and this may be the most important, as A.T. Robertson observed, touch me not, in the Greek, may, mu, haptu, is the present middle imperative of prohibition with a genitive case, meaning, quote, cease clinging to me, rather than do not touch me. So she had already been clinging to him. This meaning is reflected, incidentally, in many good English translations, including the Christian Jewish or the Complete Jewish Bible, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, 1995, the New King James Version, the New American Bible, the New International Version, the New Jerusalem Bible, and the New Revised Standard Version, many others. On top of that, Robertson correctly observed something that really puts down that former suggestion that, quote, Jesus allowed the women to take hold of his feet and worship, as we read in Matthew 28, 9. When did that happen? Almost at dawn of his resurrection. So, so much for that suggestion that we have hopefully now blown out of the water. In any case, nothing could have been more evidential to Thomas and the other disciples that Jesus had arisen bodily from the dead. Nothing more evidential than to see Jesus, to hear him, to touch him, to examine him, Contact with the risen Jesus was contact with the new creation that is not of this creation, not of this world, Hebrews 9.11. To touch Jesus after his resurrection was to be in contact with future world, direct contact with future world. It was therefore a contact with hope incarnate. Meaning has two salient types. Linguistic meaning, the meaning you read in words, 
and incarnate meaning. Hope has an incarnate meaning in the risen Christ and a linguistic meaning in the scriptures of truth. It was a close encounter that these disciples had, that Mary had, that the women had, that the disciples had. A close encounter, not of the third, but of the fourth kind. Seeing Jesus risen from the dead was seeing hope incarnate. The written word is an anatomy of hope. So is the incarnate word, the word made flesh who suffered unimaginable death in God-forsakenness and the incomprehensible conquest of death itself in resurrection. He caused the incomprehensible conquest of death in his resurrection. In Psalm 16, speaking of hope, the Messiah actually said, my flesh will abide or rest in hope. Psalm 16:9 but that's the Septuagint of 15:9 Dead in the tomb following the death of the cross the culmination of his obedience to the father's universally saving will his body did not undergo decay unlike any other human body from which someone exits in death and in going to be with the lord his body did not undergo decay. Now this is going to be the basis for a doctrine and for a challenge of our former beliefs down the road. So I hope you'll pay attention to it. His body did not undergo decay in his three days and three nights in the grave. This was the case with Jesus alone. The same body in which he had died was raised and transformed into an incorruptible and immortal body of glory. It's called a body of glory in Philippians 3.20 and 21. It's called a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15.44. And that describes both Jesus' body and the future body or bodies of all humanity in resurrection. Jesus' body of glory is the focus of our hope. For as Philippians 3.20-21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. I call that Oranopolis, the heavenly city. From which we, eagerly, we are eagerly awaiting. Remember, most of life is waiting, and that has two meanings. Most of life consists of our waiting, but most of life is waiting to be lived by us. <clears throat> so again, our citizenship is in heaven from which we are eagerly awaiting the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state to be similar in form and constitution to his body of glory by the same operative, omnipotent power that enables him to subject all things to himself. When all things and all beings, created beings, are subjected to our Lord Jesus, then all things and all beings will be saved. For this submission 
is salvation. This submission spoken of in Philippians 3.20 and 21, but also in Psalm 110, which is echoed in Hebrews 1.13 and 10.13 and developed further in 1 Corinthians 15.25 to 27. This submission is salvation. It involves every knee bowing in worship to him and every tongue acknowledging his praise. The patristic theologian Origen, that's O-R-I-G-E-N, we've referred to him many times before in our studies, he saw, he saw universal salvation in Hebrews 5.9. In his view, that Jesus became, quote, the cause of eternal salvation to all who obey him, is a statement not only of age-abiding or eternal salvation, but also of universal salvation. The reason for this, according to Origen, is that obedience and submission means salvation. In Latin, it's universal subjectio, as he S-U-B-J-E-C-T-I-O, universal subjectio equated with universal salus. Universal subjection, and it's true that everyone will be subjected to him, created beings in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, above the sea, etc., all will be Subjected to, I just saw a mouse run across the stage here. It's interesting. Now, subjection equals salvation. I haven't seen that in any commentary on Hebrews, especially Hebrews 5.9, except, well, our own commentary and in Origen's treatment of apocatastasis pantone. So once again, the patristic theologian or Origen saw universal salvation. Now, it is well known that Origen was officially condemned by the so-called church. But it wasn't for his view of universal salvation. It was for other things. It's amazing that people condemn you for believing in the salvation of all today when they didn't even do that in stricter, more rigid times for Origen. In his view, that Jesus became, quote, the source or the cause of eternal salvation to all who obey him is a statement not only of age abiding or eternal salvation, but also universal salvation. I'll repeat it again. The reason for this, according to Origen, is that obedience and submission means salvation. In Latin, it's universal subjectio equated with universal salus, and he does this especially with reference to 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 28, which I would urge everyone who hears this message to familiarize themselves with that passage, but really go back to 15, 20 to 28. And also Hebrews 5, 9 in Origen's case. Alaria Ramelli did one of the most remarkable treatments of apocatastasis related to Hebrews in a fairly recent publication called The Great Cloud of Witnesses or The Cloud of Witnesses. 
one of the most remarkable pieces I've ever read, and it's only a brief article, but it's extraordinary. Consequently, when all things are subjected to Jesus, all will be obedient to him and all will be saved because Jesus is the cause of salvation to all who obey him. We can say all who obey Jesus will be saved. But we can also say all will obey him so all will be saved. This is also in accord with Ephesians 4.13, which I keep developing in my study from time to time. It keeps coming up, keeps coming up, and I have to believe that it's the Holy Spirit's recall of this. I haven't yet fully treated it as I ought, but I, I intend to. Ephesians 4.13, which says, and my sense of it right now says this, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge that comes with conformity with God's Son, into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's perfection. That's Ephesians 4.13. Now it's worth noting that the gifts that the ascended Messiah distributed among humanity, and this is so important, I can't even stress it enough with volume or with repetition. But it's worth noting that the gifts that the ascended Messiah distributed among humanity were not gifts to the church, but to mankind. Tois anthropois, or anthropois, mankind, humankind, in Ephesians 4.8, which is a, an allusion to Psalm 68.18 and Psalm 67.19 in the Septuagint. Until we all come to the unity of the faith is not when all the church comes to the unity of the faith, but when all mankind comes to the unity of the faith and conformity to the Son of God. I would translate the phrase, the knowledge, epignosis, of the Son of God, tes epignosios, to huiu to theu. That phrase in Ephesians 4.13, as the knowledge that comes with conformity with the Son of God, because for one thing, Paul aspired to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Please notice that. He aspired to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in Philippians 3.10. So the knowing, the true knowing of Christ to which Paul aspired is associated with conformity to Christ. To, the God, to God's dear Son. That God the Father has predestined us to be conformed into the image of his Son in Romans 8.29 means that God has predestined all of humankind to be conformed into the image of his Son. This is part of what we, we may call a conformity Christology. 
that God's great intention includes conformity of all humanity and all creation for that matter into the image of his son accords splendidly with the original intent of the triune God to quote make man in our own image make mankind in our own image not just a man Adam but all humanity Genesis 1:26 the image of God is Christ image of God is Christ that word is in the Greek is akon and it's found in 2 Corinthians 4:4 4, where Christ is called the image of God it's found in Colossians 1:15 where Christ the son of God's love is called the image of God and this may be compared with another word which is in this case a synonym there's much to be said about this word in the Greek the only time we see it in the New Testament is in Hebrews 1 3 character c-h-a-r a-k-t-a-t-e-r character and that means pretty much the same as image, although it has its own nuances of meaning. And so, that this means all of humanity is confirmed in Romans 8.30, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son means all of humanity is actually confirmed in Romans 8.30, where it says, as many as God foreknew, he also calls, justifies, and glorifies. And it had already been established in Romans that God justifies all of humankind because of Jesus' obedience and his one righteous act. Romans 5.18-19. I can't emphasize that enough. If Jesus' one act of righteousness and act of obedience justified many in Isaiah 53.9 and Romans 5.19 and many equals all in Romans 5.18 and 1 Timothy 2.6 then God justifies all. And if he glorifies all whom he justifies, then he must conform all into the image of his Son. For to be glorified is to be conformed into the glorious image of God's unique Son, Jesus Christ. Now that's counterintuitive reasoning, but it's scriptural reasoning. And the image of his son, the son, the son, is the whole subject and object of the focus of Hebrews in its totality. The many sons, therefore, in Hebrews 2.10, whom Jesus brings to glory, or whom God, we could say, brings to glory through Jesus Christ, that's all of humanity justified through Jesus' faithful obedience and death. So beyond what Origen suggested and beyond what I think his right instincts have said to us, that all will eventually obey Jesus Christ, I think all those who obey him is all of humanity to whom Jesus' obedience is attributed. In other words, his obedience as the representative man is the obedience of all humankind. 
And so to be the savior of all who obey him is to be the savior of all humankind. No wonder Origen chose Hebrews as one of his main texts to prove or to reveal or to elucidate the doctrine of what we know as apokatastasis, or as the scripture knows it more clearly, apokatastasios panton in Acts 3.21. We're reading Hebrews with this light on, the light of the restoration of all things. That's why it's a different kind of commentary than you're going to get on the market, usually. It appears that the much maligned origin, and he's maligned by ancient and modern ignorant theologians, it is appearing, appears that the much maligned origin had the right instincts, exegetical instincts, about universal salvation with regard to Hebrews 5.9, especially in connection with 1 Corinthians 15.25 to 28. In my view, and I take a stand and have to take a stand, and I'm not really going to be one of those maybe theologians unless I don't really know something as I ought to, which is almost everything, but in my view, Origen's view, aligned with Paul's universal horizon of salvation, and with the salvific horizon of the PT who wrote Hebrews. Both Paul in Philippians 3.20 and 21 and 1 Corinthians 15.27-28 and the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.13 and 10.13 and more obliquely in Hebrews 5.9 alluded to Psalm 110.1. Now, all of the messages I'm preaching are what Lonergan would have called a blurred outline. I'm not filling in all the details I'm talking about. I hope some of you will do that. I have, perhaps they're unrealistic dreams, but I have unrealistic hopes. Maybe they're unrealistic, maybe they're not. That someday a young man will take these notes and have the humility to expand upon them to elucidate them further, to look up the scriptures, to see their nuanced meanings, and to proclaim them. I pray that my grandsons will be among those who communicate the great grace of God, the universal grace of God in their generation. I pray that for many people, for many young people, and for your children and grandchildren. Perhaps it's not such an unrealistic expectation because of the faithfulness of God. Only Hebrews quotes Psalm 110.4, however, and speaks of Jesus as the eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. According to Origen, Christ's priesthood also has universal efficacy. Let me say that again. According to Origen, Christ's priesthood also has a universal efficacy. One dose of his priesthood, and you don't need a booster. But Paul certainly understood the universal effectiveness not only of Jesus' death, but also of Jesus' resurrection, exaltation, and intercession at the right hand of God in Romans 8.34. And I hope in our next increment to take this on because I want to look at an anatomy of hope in Romans 
and show how that correlates with an anatomy of hope in Hebrews. We have an audience today, a wonderful, maybe I'll call him Mickey, Mickey Mouse. And we will see how this Romans anatomy of hope, especially the part that speaks of the narrative regarding Abraham in Romans 4, will help us to understand the upcoming passage in Hebrews 6, verses 12 to 15, and then even beyond that. So I think I'm going to take the time to do an anatomy of hope in Romans in our next increment and then show how that leads us into Hebrews. So, for this reason... Paul actually mentions this in Romans 8.34. He kind of alludes to the fact of Jesus' mediation as priest without calling him a priest or an archpriest in Romans 8.34. In fact, and again, for this and another good reason, it will prove profitable for us to consider the particular anatomy of hope in Paul's epistle to the Romans. We came to Hebrews via Romans. And to compare it with regard to to the specific part that deals with Abraham in Romans 4.16 and following, so you might want to be attuned to that passage for our next increment, Hebrews 6.13 to 15 also, and Hebrews 11.8 to 19. And again, we're only going to present a blurred outline at first and then hopefully fill it in. As we develop this anatomy of hope, I'm seeing, hopefully as you are seeing, that our hope is more than just personal. It is universal too. Because Jesus certainly has personal significance for every individual. And the significance is saving. But it's also a significance of friendship. But he also has universal significance. That which I like to call universally saving significance. As his cross has universally redemptive impact. And as his intercession as great archpriest has universal effectiveness also. Most of life is waiting, then, I'll say in closing. Most of life is waiting. It's a saying with a double meaning. Most of life consists of a fruitful waiting for the full realization of our biblical hope and of seeing Jesus as he is and being made like him Most of life in this life, we will be waiting for those that have passed on before us into the presence of Christ. And I think even of Bruce Neuschaefer, who recently saw the passing of his mom into the presence of Christ. And for the others who in our own phalanx have endured the pain and grief of loss of loved ones, but know that it's a temporary loss and that most of their life now is waiting to see them again, but most of all waiting to see our Savior, Jesus Christ, whom to see is to become like him. He that has this hope in him, how blessed are we. She that has this hope in her, how blessed are you. Most of life is waiting. It consists of a fruitful waiting, though, for the realization of our biblical hope, and of seeing Jesus as he is and being made like him. Most of life is waiting also means that most of life is ahead of us and waiting for us and yet to be lived. And this will be true even at the moment of our death 
At the moment of our death, most of our life is waiting. Most of life, the vast and endless, unspeakably joyous part of it, is in future world. And it's waiting for us, even as Jesus, the embodiment of our hope, awaits us more than perhaps we're even waiting for him. Thank you, Father, for this glorious assurance. Convey it, especially to those who are suffering, suffering illness, suffering persecution, suffering ostracism, suffering social shaming, suffering the loss of a dearly beloved one, the temporary loss. And we ask these things and trust your faithfulness and your unconditional love. In Jesus' name, amen.